If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn again to the Gospel of John, to chapter 20. Pastor Ben, a moment ago, read the passage that we'll be considering this morning. I want us to just read uh, verses 8 through 9 of John chapter 20. Please follow along as I read John chapter 20, verses 8 and 9. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Can we pray once more? Let's pray. Father, what Pastor Ben prayed a moment ago is true. We so want our hearts to be more excited, uh, more engaged, uh, more captivated by the truths of Your Word. So animate us and excite our hearts in this hour now as we behold wonderful things from Your Word. We pray that we would be engaged. We pray that our hearts would be captivated by the truths that we find here. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Everything changed in May 1980. All of America was captivated, confounded, transfixed. What did this mean and what would the implications be? All those who watched knew they would never see things the same way again. They would have to reinterpret everything. The world itself was somehow change somehow different. And we too were all different because of this new revelation. Everything changed as viewers heard those five words, five words that changed everything. Those five words were, Luke, I am your father. (laughs) How could this be? Darth Vader, Luke's father, Americans rushed to the nearest video rental store in those pre-blockbuster days, kids, you can ask your parents, uh, to rent Star Wars A New Hope, the first installment of the Star Wars series, to re-watch it now in light of this new revelation nestled deep near the end of George Lucas's highly anticipated sequel, The Empire Strikes Back. Now with this new revelation in their minds, they would see things they didn't see before upon a second viewing. The storyline was given a whole new meaning. The plot had thickened. If Darth Vader was Luke's father, then everything had changed. And one thing is for sure, we will never watch Star Wars A New Hope the same way ever again. Now, I use this admittedly cheap and humorous illustration, introduction, to illustrate a very simple principle. New information sometimes necessitates new interpretation. New information sometimes necessitates new interpretation. Perhaps you've read a book and there's some revelation at the end of the book and it's only then that you can uh, accurately understand the beginning of the book. Maybe at some point in your life you've learned something new about someone you've known for years and this new information causes you to completely reinterpret their character, their personality, maybe their, their whole life story. You see them in a completely new light now because of the new information. New information can have this effect. Now, the disciples of Jesus had no sense, no idea, no concept even that the Christ would die and rise again. This wasn't in their framework at all. In fact, their framework disallowed it. Christ don't die. If they don't die, there's certainly no need for them to rise again. And yet, upon learning that Jesus had risen from the dead, they then realized they had to reinterpret everything. Everything changed from them for them once they saw the empty tomb. But unlike George Lucas's epic Star Wars series, in which he made up the idea halfway through the Empire Strikes Back to make Darth Vader Luke's father, the Bible 
namely the Old Testament, foretold of the Messiah's death and resurrection. Uh, The plot twist was foreseen by the Old Testament Scriptures. The Scriptures anticipated this seemingly new development. But somehow everyone missed it. The disciples didn't see it, didn't perceive it, didn't comprehend it, certainly didn't expect it. And we know that because no one was sitting outside the tomb waiting for Jesus to walk out of that grave. But one thing is for certain, from the moment those disciples stood in that empty tomb, on down to today, no disciple would ever miss it again. All of Jesus' disciples would come to understand that the Christ must rise from the dead. Our focus this morning will be on verses 8 and 9, particularly this theme of how the Old Testament Scriptures anticipated the resurrection of the Son of God, and we want to see some of the implications of the ongoing relevance of the resurrection for Christian people today, Uh, but I want us to see the contextual data leading up to those two verses. So we're going to walk our way up to John 20, verses 8 and 9. Uh, So we want to observe some things in this text under these three main headings, and then we'll look at some implications. Let's consider the burial of Jesus, secondly, the empty tomb, and thirdly, the disciples' reaction. The burial of Jesus, the empty tomb, and then the disciples' reaction. Consider with me first the burial of Jesus. And we're told that it was the day of preparation, a preparation for the Sabbath, so it's Friday, the day before the Sabbath. And that's significant because the Mosaic law insisted that anyone hanged on a gibbet should not remain there overnight. Such a person was understood to be under God's curse and to leave him exposed on a cross, for example, would be to desecrate the land. And this is why the Jews were eager to take these men down from the cross. They can't be hanging there on the Sabbath. We have to take them down, or else we too will be unclean. So they ask Pilate if they can break the legs of these three men, the two robbers on either side of Jesus, and of course the Lord Himself. And the assumption seems to be that they would think these, these men were all still living. And now, now, the reason for that is uh, if, if you were crucified on a cross in those days, you, you would have at the base of your feet kind of like a little footstool. And the reason for that would be that that while one would be hanging on the cross, they would lose access to oxygen to fill their body for for them to be able to continue living. And so in order to enhance the agony of the whole affair, they'd put a stool there so that those who were being suffocated, sometimes in an involuntary way, would, would feel the impulse to press up in order to raise their lungs up and to receive oxygen. And so the, the, those at the cross of the two robbers and Jesus conclude, well, let's break their legs so that they can no longer do that. They can die more quickly. And so they broke the legs of the first two men, the criminals crucified on either side of Jesus. But when they get to Jesus, they discover that he's already dead. So they don't bother breaking his legs. He's dead. There's no need to break his legs, to suffocate him. He's, he's already dead. But one of the soldiers decides to drive a spear into the side of Jesus. Precisely why he does this, we don't know exactly. Perhaps uh, he was wanting to prick Jesus to see if, in fact, he was dead or something like that. He drives a spear into the side of Jesus, and out flows water and blood. And it's this verse, this account, that inspires that famous line from the great Augustus Top Lady hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. Let me hide myself in thee, let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure, cleanse me of its guilt and power. Well, you see in the activities of those at the cross how in a very prosaic fashion uh, they go about these events. Uh, They don't break Jesus' legs because he's already dead. We're going to break his legs, he's dead, no need to do that. Let's make sure he's dead. Let's drive a spear into his side. Nothing very profound about it. Going about their job. But what does John, the writer, make of these things? Well, first of all, he's careful to enter his own testimony into the record. And in essence, he says, I was an eyewitness to these things. 
I was there. I can testify. They broke the legs of the criminals on the other side. They didn't break his legs because, listen, he was already dead. And they drove a spear into his side, and out came water and blood. I saw it. I was there. I testified to these things. Jesus was dead. He's entering his eyewitness testimony into the record. But then he indicates, once again, to the reader, as he has a number of times already in the events of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, uh, he indicates once again to the reader that all of this happened according to the Scriptures. So, so look at verse 36. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled, and then quotes the Scripture, not one of his bones will be broken. So, so soldiers think no need to break his legs, he's already dead. But, but John says this, this happened to fulfill the scripture that said not one of his bones will be broken. Now, what scripture does John have in mind here? Well, it could be Psalm 30, verse 20. There the psalmist describes God's care for the righteous. And in verse 19, he writes, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. And perhaps that is the most obvious reference but it is possible, and, and I would argue even likely, that there exists a deeper allusion here to the Passover lamb. Okay, so, so you remember the Passover, right? Everyone familiar with that event? God's people, Israel, are in bondage in the land of Egypt. God's going to bring about deliverance for His people, and so He sends ten plagues, ten afflictions upon the people of Israel. And, and the tenth plague is that the angel of the Lord is going to come. He's going to pass through the land, and He's going to take the life of the firstborn of every household. But God's people will be spared through this new ceremony, this new ritual that's inaugurated. It's called the Passover going to happen is the Israelites are commanded to take a lamb, they're going to slaughter that lamb, they're going to take the blood and appropriate it on the, the lintels, on the, the, the doorposts of their house, so that when the angel of the Lord comes, he'll see the blood over their door and he'll pass over them. Now you know this, right? There's, there's, there's much that's made in the gospel accounts about Jesus dying around the feast of Passover, and Paul makes the, the, the link uh, crystal clear in 1 Corinthians 5 when he talks about Christ our Passover lamb who was sacrificed for us. See, Christ was the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and the cross event is connected in a major way to the Passover event. And, and, and in many ways, the Passover event is prefiguring what Christ would do for us. As those Jews needed to have the blood of the Lamb appropriated over the doors of their houses, we need to have the blood of Christ appropriated over the doors of our heart so that we would not be condemned and not be judged, but might have everlasting life. Now, what does that have to do with not one of his bones will be broken? You may know that part of the prescription in the Old Covenant is that the Passover lamb's bones were not to be broken. They weren't to break any of the lamb's bones. So I see in this a, an illusion as Jesus, our Passover lamb, is sacrificed on our behalf, none of his bones will be broken. The connection to the Passover lamb is enhanced. It's brought out to a greater degree. Well, then you have a second scripture reference, and it's in verse 37 where it says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. It's very likely an allusion to Zechariah 12.10, which says, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, the Lord, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Well then, verse 39 introduces Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, from the other gospel accounts, we know that Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin, uh, that he was a rich man and that he was a disciple of the Lord Jesus. And uh, Luke records that he was a good and righteous man, that he had not consented to the decision to put Jesus to death, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. Only John records the detail that he was a disciple in secret for fear of the Jews. Well, Joseph was probably trading on his position as a man who was prominent among the Sanhedrin. He goes to Pilate and secures permission to take command of the body of Jesus. And then he's assisted by a character who appeared many chapters ago back in John 3. 
Nicodemus, that man who came to Jesus by night and who Jesus spoke to about the new birth, Nicodemus comes and he assists Joseph in this process of embalming Jesus with the spices and wrapping him in the linen cloths and burying him in the tomb. It's hard not to see in the actions of these two men, Joseph and Nicodemus, real love for the Lord Jesus. We're not given any insight into their thoughts or their actions, why they did what they did, but I just find it hard not to see that they're doing this out of real love and reverence and care for the Lord. Uh, we're never told that Nicodemus was born again. Personally, I find that it stretches the, mag- the imagination to think that he was not, but that's not explained in this text, so I'm just going to pass over it. But all that's recorded is these two men, Joseph, Nicodemus, they were there, and they wrapped Jesus in the linen cloths. They had the, the the spices that were there, according to the Jewish custom, Jesus was dead, Jesus was buried. And that, I think, is the significance of these events. Both the treatment of Jesus' body on the cross after he gave up his spirit, and this burial ritual carried on by Joseph and Nicodemus, I think are recorded simply to emphasize that Jesus was dead. Totally and completely, he was not mostly dead, he was not in a coma, he was not on life support, he was not in a state of shock, he was so dead, they didn't even bother to break his legs, and they pierced his side, water and blood flowed out of him, and two rich men came and performed the customary burial rites. Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the Christ, was dead. And John said, I was there, I saw it. The Son of God died. Secondly, consider with me the empty tomb. Uh, the empty tomb. We've seen the burial of Jesus, now the empty tomb. We're told that on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. The other gospel accounts record that Mary Magdalene was accompanied by other women. John's account doesn't disallow for uh, that fact. It's possible Mary Magdalene went twice, perhaps once by herself and then accompanied by other women. Perhaps John just doesn't record the presence of the other women there. Uh, but she She sees the stone removed from the tomb. Perhaps she's still afar off and she's approaching the tomb. She sees the stone isn't there and the impression we're left with is that's about as far as Mary got. She sees the stone is not there and so she runs to tell Simon Peter and the man who we assume is the apostle John, the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved. She tells them, verse 2 of chapter 20, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Uh, Perhaps she thought that they were desecrating the body of Jesus or robbers came and stole the body. Doesn't seem that she has any notion that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Well, Peter and John then dash toward the tomb. We're not told what was in their hearts and minds. Perhaps they feared that Jesus' body was being desecrated. Perhaps they were simply curious Perhaps there was some small hope uh, that that somehow he was alive. Perhaps it was a combination of these three things. Perhaps they didn't even know why they were running toward the tomb, but they just had to get there and find out what had happened with the Lord. Well, it's recorded that John outruns Peter, gets there first. You would be amazed by the fanciful interpretations that are applied to that fact. Some say that John represented the Gentile church and Peter the Jewish church and My personal favorite is that this was to settle a 50-year feud or something like that between John and Peter. John's just saying, let all posterity know, I got there first. I'm faster than Peter. Well, all joking aside, I think the the simple point is, this is real eyewitness testimony. There's something earthy about John's narrative. He records all these little details along the way. Uh, I think trying to introduce his testimony into the record, I was there And here are some of the incidental facts that accompanied uh, this event. This moment in John's life was very distinct. I I had a number of meetings this week. I could hardly tell you who got to the meeting place first. John remembers, I got to the tomb first. Fifty years on, this day is clear in his mind. And he stands outside the tomb, and he looks in, and he sees the linen claws lying there. The scene is, I think, that he gets to the opening of the tomb, he leans in, looks and sees the linen cloths, but he doesn't go in. So here's John, he's there, he's stunned, he's transfixed. He's standing at the mouth of the tomb, leaning in, and then Peter arrives, he passes John and actually goes into the tomb, and he sees the linen cloths lying there, 
And he sees the face cloth folded up in a place by itself. The tomb is empty. It's been thoroughly examined. The linen cloths are on the floor, and there's the face cloth neatly folded up. Tomb's empty. Jesus is gone. Now consider with me, thirdly, the disciples' reaction. So in the burial of Jesus, the empty tomb, thirdly, the disciples' reaction, verses 8 through 10. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, John, we believe, went in. So he'd been at the mouth of the tomb. Now he walks in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. As John walks in, as he sees, there's no body here. Linen cloths are on the floor, face cloth folded up over in the corner. We're told this is the moment for him that faith awakens. He saw and believed. This is an epiphany moment for John, and John is connecting the source of the epiphany to the resurrection event. John at least understands, probably Peter too, the Lord has risen. He saw and believed, and it's like at that point, all sorts of sirens are going off. As yet, they did not understand the Scripture that the Christ must rise from the dead, but now they're beginning to see it. This is the moment where faith awakens, and all these connections start to emerge in their minds. I said in the introduction, in the disciples' framework, in their understanding, this was wholly unanticipated. The, 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 the coming Messiah, the coming Christ, of all he was supposed to do, he certainly wasn't supposed to die. Now, now Peter tells us in 1 Peter that the prophets, as they prophesied about what was going to come with the Messiah, they, they earnestly inquired into these things. It's like they knew, they had a sense, all right, we don't know exactly how this is going to work itself out. But we have these great covenants. We have this great promise that a son of David's going to come. He's going to reign on his father's throne forever. But they were aware, I think, how all the details are going to come together. What exactly this is going to look like is not perfectly clear. And, and accordingly, there were theories that emerged in terms of how this was going to go. We got a picture of that in John 7 as people were debating, when the Christ comes, what's he going to be like? What's he going to do? What's he going to say? Is it going to be different than what this man is doing? There were theories about what the Christ, who he was going to be, what he was going to do, how he, he was going to establish his rule. But among all those theories, this was not one of them, that the Christ would die and that the Christ would rise from the dead. There was no expectation on the disciples' part that this was how redemptive history was going to unfold. It did not occur to them that this would be the outcome. They had not yet understood that this is what the Scripture was driving towards. Now, remind you of, of a brief statement that's made back in John 2. It's like a, over a year ago we were in, in John 2. Uh, and, and, and some of you thought then we'd never get to the end of this series, but ha-ha, we're in John 20, we're almost there. But back in John 2, what happens in John 2? Well, you have the, the turning of the water into wine at the wedding of Cana in Galilee. And then you have Jesus right after at the feast of Passover cleansing the temple. And, and there in, in John chapter 2, the, the Jews are kind of astounded by this. They say, verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? And then John says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body, veiled reference to his resurrection. And then John includes verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, John 20 verse 9, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the Scripture and the Word that Jesus had spoken. It's foreshadowing there in John 2. Now the event is here. And now they begin to understand the Scripture that the Christ must rise from the dead. Now the question emerges, what Scripture didn't they understand? Scripture is being fulfilled that the Christ must rise from the dead. If John means to reference a singular Scripture... Perhaps it's Psalm 16, verse 10. Psalm 16 is a messianic psalm. You know what a messianic psalm is, right? 
That's when the psalmist himself is writing in such a fashion that the writing transcends his experience and merges with the experience of the coming one, the Christ. And, and, and it's said of the psalmist that they, they prophesied of the one who was to come. Psalm 16 is a messianic psalm. We're meant to understand Psalm 16 to be in reference to the Messiah. And there in Psalm 16 we read, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Verse 10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. That is to death, to the grave. You're not going to leave me in the grave. Or let your Holy One see decay. The body of your Holy One, your anointed one, the Christ, will not rot, it will not decay. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David wrote that psalm. David died. And, and, and his body decayed. He, he didn't rise from the dead. Can't be about David. All right, tuck that away, and we'll come back to that in a moment. So, so if John intends to refer to one singular scripture, could be Psalm 16, verse 10, personally, I think, personally is the operative word, I think, okay? Don't know this for sure. Personally, though, I think that John has in view the whole of Scripture and not one singular verse. There are multiple texts that can be adduced to indicate that the Christ was going to rise again. But see, I think the statement in John 20 verse 9 works more like this. Uh, appreciating now that Christ rose from the dead, in light of this fact, an empty tomb, a resurrected Christ, well, see, now they begin to understand the Bible. They begin to understand the Old Testament. They begin to understand the Scripture. Like they, they begin to put together the, the, the storyline of the Bible. All of a sudden, they see with greater clarity than they saw before, and they're now aware they have to go back and reinterpret everything. You imagine it says in verse 10, they went back to their homes. What were they doing back at their homes? How did we miss this? What didn't we see? Brothers, break out the scrolls and the parchments. Let's piece this together. Somehow we missed that the Christ was to die and he was to rise again. And now, now that they have this piece, this interpretive key, this, this hermeneutical detail, the resurrection of Jesus, now they can reinterpret everything. And I mean everything. I mean, everything they knew about the Messiah sort of has to go out the window. They have to reinterpret the covenants. They have to reinterpret the Mosaic law and the sacrificial system and what it was pointing to. They have to reinterpret the gospel, the kingdom, the resurrection at the last day, salvation. Everything is now reinterpreted in light of this new information. They have to go back now and read the Old Testament with this new development in their minds. And my guess is for Peter and for John and for the other disciples that after reading the Old Testament, they probably realized, how on earth did we miss this? How did we not see that the Christ was to die and that the Christ was to rise again? And one thing's for certain, they will never read the Bible the same way ever again. It's like that movie, you ever, you ever seen The Sixth Sense? That's an old movie now. It's like 20 years ago that movie came out. You can only watch that movie twice because, you know, it's going one way. And you get to the end, and there's this grand revelation. Bruce Willis has been dead the whole time. Spoiler alert. And uh, you're supposed to do that before, aren't you? Yeah. Bruce Willis is dead, and then you realize, okay, now when I go back and watch the movie, um, when I thought he was talking to the lady there, really she was talking to herself. And when he was like the psychiatrist for the boy, he was just another dead person that the boy was... See, all of a sudden you realize... Everything I thought about this movie was wrong. I've got to go back and watch it again. You see it with new clarity now. This discovery for these disciples is somewhat like that. It put the entire Bible into perspective. This discovery, this moment, gave shape now to all of redemptive history. And what's the disciples' reaction? Well, certainly new clarity on the Scriptures. They hadn't understood, but now they do. 
And at least in John's case, probably Peter's as well, but at least in John's case, this is the moment when he believes. He sees. He has faith. Well, in the minutes that remain, I want us to see just a few implications from this this event of the resurrection for the Christian faith and for the Christian life. And particularly, I want us to see the sort of new understanding that the apostles had of the Old Testament scriptures, of the Christian faith, of the Christian life in light of this resurrection event. I'm not going to be comprehensive. I have three implications I want to share. We're going to talk about the resurrection for the next few weeks. Next week, we'll consider Jesus' appearance to Mary, then Jesus' appearance to the disciples, and then Jesus' appearance to Thomas. That's the next three weeks for us. So I'm just going to give a few things here this morning, and we'll open up more in the days to come. But three implications uh, of the resurrection of Jesus for the Christian faith, for the Christian life. Number one, the gospel's climax is the resurrection. The gospel's climax is the resurrection. Please turn to Acts chapter 2. To Acts chapter 2. It's very important to have our eyes on this passage. I've never heard, personally, a good explanation uh, from an atheist or an agnostic as to how the disciples so radically changed in just a matter of a few short weeks from cowering in fear behind locked doors to preaching the gospel in the streets to the very people who crucified Jesus. If you wanted to find the disciples that morning, you'd have to do the old, get the password at the door if they were going to let you in. These men are scared to death, hiding behind locked doors. We're told later that that in, in John 20, that behind locked doors, Jesus has to walk through the wall in order to stand in the midst of them. And yet, just seven weeks later, roughly, 50 days later, Peter is standing there out in the streets and he's preaching about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And, and, and he's not just saying, I'm a witness to this. He's wagging his finger in the faces of those who crucified Jesus and said, you did this. You put this man to death and you need to repent. Remember, this is the same Peter who, seven weeks before that event, couldn't even respond to a, a servant girl who could do him no harm, that he even knew who Jesus was. A radical, a transformation, the resurrection wrought in the lives and understandings of these disciples. So here we are in Acts 2, and, and Jesus, excuse me, Peter is standing up at Pentecost, and he's, he's about to preach this gospel sermon. Wonderful summary of the gospel in Acts 2, Peter's sermon here, verses 22, and I'll read through verse 36. The men of Israel, verse 22, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, Man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Where did that come from? When did the disciples understand that he was supposed to die according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God? It wasn't, wasn't on Friday that they put that together. Perhaps it was after they saw the empty tomb, went back to their houses. They realized this was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's all he says about the death of Jesus. Climax. What's the climax? Verse 24, God raised him loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and now here's Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, you will make me full of gladness with your presence." Listen to how Peter unfolds this, how he exegetes Psalm 16. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence, but the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. He's saying, boys, you want to come on down to the tomb? Let's see if he was left in Hades, if he has actually seen corruption and decay. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet, speaking of David, 
And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The seeds of this sermon were planted seven weeks earlier as Peter stood in the midst of that tomb and he saw on the ground the folded face cloth. And then the wheels start turning. And then he realizes the Christ must rise from the dead. Of course. How could we have ever understood Psalm 16 differently? The Christ must die, and He must rise from the dead. Isn't that amazing? In a matter of just a few weeks, oh, all the connections are put together. Now they see with greater clarity, this is how it must happen. This is the redemptive storyline of Scripture. This is what everything in the Old Testament was driving at, and this is now the message the apostles preach, the climax of the gospel. The climax of God's redemptive purposes in the Christ, in the Messiah, is that He would die and rise from the dead. This Christ God has raised up. We don't have time to turn there, but the Apostle Paul makes this same point in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you want to tuck this away as a Christian, it's just helpful to have this for ready reference. One of the best, most concise summaries of the gospel is in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 7. Paul starts by saying, I'm delivering to you that which was delivered to me, the gospel, the matters of first importance. And he talks about how the Christ came and how he died and was buried and how he was raised according to the Scriptures. He was raised according to the Scriptures. First importance, essential, climax of the gospel itself. Okay, listen, therefore we must say, now this is a very important point, we must say that the gospel has not been preached until the resurrection is preached. Let me say that again. The gospel has not been preached until the resurrection has been preached. The gospel is not that Jesus died for our sins. It's part of it. But, but a dead Jesus is a defeated Jesus. He's a savior of no one. The gospel has not been preached. It's not finished. We don't have the message itself until Jesus walks out of that tomb. So brothers and sisters, let me encourage you, let me urge you as you instruct your children, as you share the gospel with friends and coworkers, get to the climax. He didn't stay in the grave. And the reason his death and sacrifice are acceptable to God and are efficacious is because he walked out of the grave. Because God raised him up according to the Scriptures. This is how it was meant to unfold. This is what was foretold by the prophet David and the prophet Isaiah and so many other places in the Old Testament. This Christ, God raised him up. Our faith is in a risen Savior. The gospel is no gospel unless the resurrection is true. The resurrection becomes the climax of the gospel. Second implication. Gospel's climax is the resurrection. Secondly, faith's object is a risen Christ. Faith's object, the one who we believe in, hope in, the one who we treasure, the one who we love, the one whom we serve, the one whom we follow, the object of faith is a risen, living Christ. And this is all over the writings of the New Testament. The New Testament writers taught that our faith must rest in a risen Christ or else we have nothing. I don't have salvation. Christ is not risen. I don't have the forgiveness of sins. I don't have someone interceding for me at God's right hand. I have no hope to look forward to. I don't have someone walking with me and leading me like a shepherd through all the storms of this life. I've got nothing if my faith is in one who simply died as a gesture of sacrificial love and goodwill. But if he walks out of the tomb, if he's risen, well, then I have everything. Let me just list a few things. If our faith 
is faith in a risen Christ, then we truly have salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. Romans 4.25, he was delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. You are right with God, brother or sister, because Jesus walked out of the tomb. This is why they said the Christ must rise from the dead. He was raised for our justification. Paul develops a very elaborate argument in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, That's where you have that summary of the gospel, and then he talks about the significance, the implications of the resurrection, and he says, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you're still in your sins. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I'll sometimes hear Christians speak in this way. You know, being a Christian is so wonderful. I have a joy, 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 joy down in my heart. And you know what, maybe it's all pie in the sky. Maybe even, but even if I've got this wrong, man, being a Christian is like the best kind of life you can live. That's absolutely false. That, that, that totally undercuts Paul's argument. I don't know what Christian life you're living, but it's not the one that I'm living. Christian life is hard. The Christian life involves mortifying sin and being ostracized by others and having to say unpopular things. There are people that have been killed all across the world for this. People have been fed to lions. People who are having to go underground and are in prisons right now for the Christian faith. If, if, if all we have in terms of our Christian hope is, well, the Christian life is awesome, and I'm so glad I got my 80 years as a Christian, we're to be pitied more than anybody else in the world. If he doesn't rise, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. But if he does rise, if he does rise, well, then all my sins are forgiven, and I'm right with God, and and I know that I have a Savior whose blood on my behalf, whose sacrifice for my sins is effectual. If our faith is faith in a risen Christ, then we truly have salvation and the forgiveness of sins. If our faith is faith in a risen Christ, then we have one who continually makes intercession for us. We heard about this this morning in the equip class. Hebrews 7, 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. Why? Because he died on the cross. No, it doesn't say that, though that's partly true. We are saved to the uttermost because he ever lives to make intercessions for us. You understand the ongoing life of Jesus, you need that in order to be saved? That that sacrifice, that once-for-all sacrifice, though it is finished and it is effectual, Christ is pleading that sacrifice again and again, and we still have sins. We need an intercessor, someone who's living to mediate, to intercede, to be our high priest. Hebrews 9.24 says a similar thing, that Christ entered into heaven itself. Now, now, not then, now, to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. If our faith is faith in a risen Christ, Furthermore, we have a Savior, a friend, and a shepherd who walks with us, who leads us, and never leaves us or forsakes us. The resurrection ensures the ongoing presence of Christ with his people. Remember all those precious promises that Jesus made to his disciples that he would be with them, his presence would be with them, like, I'm going to go, but my presence, I'll be with you. He said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am with you also. He said, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He said, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. All those promises from the lips of Jesus are no good to me if he doesn't come out of that tomb. But if he does, not one of them can fail. You recognize, you don't just need to look backwards on the death of Jesus, The promise is that Jesus is with us, helping us, succoring us, drawing near to us. The Lord Jesus is with us, and you need his ongoing presence. You need to commune with the Lord Jesus. You need to know his power and presence in your life, and the promise is fulfilled because he rose from the dead, and he ever lives with us. Well, a final thing I might mention under this second implication is that if our faith is faith in a risen Christ, this is so important then we can share with sinners the invitation from the lips of Jesus, come to me. 
can't come to a dead person. But see, as, as truly as Jesus stood with arms spread wide in Matthew 11 or John 7, John 6, said, come to me. You thirst, come to me and drink. Out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. You weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. That promise is still sure. And we're telling people now, you can come to the living Jesus. Because he rose, he is able to be a savior for you. And that promise still holds true. That if you come to me, he'll fulfill everything that he said he would do for sinners. He'll receive you, he'll save you, he'll make you right with God, he'll forgive your sins, and he will walk with you throughout all your days. Because our faith is in a risen Savior, we can offer a risen Savior to sinners, who still says to sinners, come to me. Well, thirdly and finally in closing, third implication I'll mention this morning. The apostles saw with new clarity that Christ must rise. And one of the things they saw most clearly Thirdly, is that the believer's hope, the believer's hope is in resurrection life. The believer's hope is in resurrection life. Do you remember back in John 11, again, many months ago, Jesus talking to Martha, Lazarus, her brother has died. He's in the grave. And he talks with Martha. Martha's so, so confused, so perplexed. If you had not been here Or if you had been here, Lord, my brother would not have died. It's a heart-wrenching scene. What does Jesus say to her? He says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now, how wonderful a vindication of those words did Martha see with her own eyes a little bit later. Lazarus came out of the tomb. Didn't he say he's the resurrection and the life? But then Jesus himself dies and he's in the grave. What about that promise? He said he was the resurrection and the life. And and now he's dead. Is the promise sure? Can I still hope in resurrection life? We see it's the resurrection of Jesus himself that ensures that promise that we too will rise again. He's risen. And therefore, all those who come to him, the resurrection and the life, we too will rise. And this is where Paul goes in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of all those who have fallen asleep. The firstfruits of all those who have fallen asleep. As in like, Christ did it first, and then we're going to do it too. He's the firstfruits of of resurrection, verse 23, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. The idea is this, through the resurrection of Jesus, we ourselves can have legitimate hope in resurrection life, to taste in the presence now, but in glory and paradise forever with the Lord Jesus. We too will rise from the dead. You recognize you too will have an empty tomb. Because Jesus had an empty tomb. One day your tomb will be empty. You say, well, I plan to be cremated. Well, your urn will be empty. Don't encourage you to be cremated, by the way. But you too will have an empty tomb because Jesus, the first fruits, walked out of his tomb. You too will rise again, and therefore we can hope in resurrection life that one day we will be raised and we will be made like him And we will see him as he is, and we will dwell in sinless perfection forever with him. That's the hope of the Christian resurrection life that we just taste now, but we'll know in the future. See, if if we only hope for Christ in this life, well, then we are the most pitiable people in the world. But see, if we hope in resurrection life that's yet to come in all its fullness, well, then we're the most privileged people in the world. What does Paul say? Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. The trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised, incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible body must put on incorruption, 
And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the corruptible puts on incorruption and the mortal puts on immortality, then will come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? There's coming a day when we will all be changed. Isn't that a glorious thing? We hope in resurrection life because Jesus rose from the dead. And one of the things that will mean is we will all be changed. Don't you want to be changed? I'm not talking now about just those who are not Christians becoming Christians. I mean Christian people here. Don't you want to be changed? Don't you feel like, I really hope I'm not the way I am 5,000 years from now. We will all be changed. One of the poets said, Ah, for a man to arise in me, that the man that I am may cease to be. I want to change. And the promise is, through what Jesus has done in rising from the dead, the first fruits of them that sleep, one day we will rise again. We will all be changed. And this corruption, this decay, this sinfulness, this mortality, it will put on incorruption, sinlessness, holiness, immortality, and we'll be clothed in the righteousness of Christ like a blanket. Though our sins are as scarlet, they'll be made whiter than snow through the blood of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that the promise is sure, based not on theory but on fact, historical fact, that Jesus Christ did emerge victorious, risen, living from the tomb, that He rose from the dead for our justification, that because He has risen, our faith isn't futile, and we're not still in our sins anymore. We thank You for what our Lord has accomplished for us. We thank You for this beautiful and glorious and wonderful plan that was anticipated years before, prophesied, foretold, that indeed the Christ would come, that He would die as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, and that He would rise again in victory over sin and death. Father, we pray, as we prayed at the start of this message, excite our minds in these things. May we see this as exceedingly wonderful and glorious. May it transform our lives, our hearts, our perspectives. May you cause Christian hope, hope of resurrection life, through what the Lord has done in His own resurrection, to, to spring in the hearts of each one here. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.